Hello and welcome to And Fake Action, the movie podcast with Phil and Dustin. I'm Dustin. And I'm Phil. Hey, Phil. How's it going, man? It's going very well. How are you? I'm doing all right. You been up to anything uh, fun lately? Not really. Just like watching movies and going to the kids' football games and working. (laughs) Well, I'm glad we're only doing a podcast on one of those things. Well, good talk. Uh, I guess we can go ahead and get, get, get right into things. Uh, well, then what about you? What have you been up to that's so exciting uh, that you'd like to talk about? Nothing. Not really much. Uh, you know, watched a few movies. I'm doing the working thing, working from home, that sort of deal. You know that. And uh, was camping this weekend, rushed home for this. And I'm um, really looking forward to having Now, we nice spoke chat. when we were preparing for this episode. We spoke about... Um, setting up a time to record today Mm -hmm. and i specifically did not want you to rush home well this wasn't because of you that i had to (laughs) rush home uh it was it was my it was because of my own poor planning i didn't give myself enough time to to listen to the audio commentary so i had to do that this morning and that pushed things back that i would ordinarily be taking care of in the a.m while we're at the camper and so yeah, we kind of had to rush home, and I hopped in the shower. And but hey, no. we're all good. So. As long as we can all establish that it was your fault, that's fine with me. It was one hundred percent your fault, but I think we'll blame you. Anyway. Wait a minute, did Who's I say fault? your fault? You said my fault. We just established uh, oh, it's your uh, fault. <laughs> um, yeah, it was my fault. It wasn't Phil's fault. Um, that's what I thought you said. Totally. So okay, so yeah, we're here to you know, talk about movies once again. And Phil, you brought up um, when we were chit-chatting a little bit before we uh, started recording that uh, in our first episode, we mentioned the first movie that we had seen together. But then in episode two, we didn't even talk about the second movie that we had seen. So I I think, I think it's important. I think the people are dying to know what the second movie we ever saw in the theater together was. So by way of background, we had this idea that we might do a short segment at the end of each episode where we talked about the films that Dustin and I have gone to the theater together to see. A list, of course, which I have meticulously been keeping track of since 1991 when we first saw a movie together in the theater. So if you remember episode one, we, we talked about Misery, which happens to be the first movie we saw in the theater together. In episode two, we did not talk about the second movie we saw in the theater together because we didn't want to. We chose something else. But for the end of the episode segment, which we completely forgot to do at the end of episode two, we were supposed to talk about the second movie we saw in the theater together, which was Tim Burton's good film, Edward Scissorhands. That's right. That was actually my second viewing of Edward Scissorhands. My first viewing of that, my dad had gotten free passes to go see Edward Scissorhands. And so he and I went to a preview showing. And it was one of those showings where the, you know, there's sometimes a radio station there and they're giving away stuff and chucking shirts out. And I actually got, and I believe I still have it in my possession, an Edward Scissorhands sweatshirt. Oh, excellent. Yeah, it's just a black sweatshirt. It says Edward Scissorhands in very small writing on the upper left. Oh, <laughs> not quite as excellent, but still no. pretty good. But yeah, I enjoyed that movie. It was a pretty good one. But we decided we weren't going to go through our list because there, are, while there are many, many um, worthy m- films to talk about on that list, there are a few that maybe aren't so worthy. Right. So we decided not to make the podcast structure around that list. Yeah. We're just going to pick movies that we like. But we can keep that segment alive. Yeah. If we still no, no, I, I, I definitely want to talk about it because I think that some of these movies are worth just remarking on 
just for a moment. And since we we didn't mention it for movie two, and we're mentioning it for for this episode, and it's the third episode, I'm going to go ahead and mention the third movie that we saw. Well, we could keep the audience in suspense. Well, that's true. Then they'll have to listen to our entire conversation about whatever movie we're about to talk about before they can hear about our movie number three. That's true, because fast-forwarding technology has yet to be perfected. Right. So, And and listeners, if you don't want to hear us talk about the movie we're about to talk about and you want to fast-forward, then you're really weird, but (laughs) it's your world. The third movie that we we saw. We cater to our listeners. You can... Fast forward. Maybe in the show notes we can put up something about exactly which minute mark in the <laughs> episode you can go to to hear that part. But back to movie number two, Edward yep. Scissorhands. Right. Feels right. I just wanted to mention that I liked that movie too. But there's something also a, a, a bit of trivia that nobody else would really care about. about which is most of what we talk about here, uh, by the way. Trip to the movie theater was there were four people that went to that movie together. Uh, four high school friends, you and me and two other gentlemen, who shortly around that period of time, we called our, started to call ourselves the Dork Brigade. You know, I don't know if we wanted to plug the Dork Brigade, you know, but the Dork Brigade is still an, an, a going concern with its own Facebook page and, and yeah. uh, 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 um, what's it called? What do the kids call that thing? TikTok. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, the kids and their TikTok. Uh, so we here at And Fake Action, of course, uh, like like to do that sort of cross promotion and promote uh, all Dork Brigade. Um, yeah, there is uh, a, uh, a fairly deep back catalog of uh, videos that we made as the Dork Brigade. We would make our video skits, many of them, most of them on VHS. Most of those have not seen the light of day outside of our small group. Uh, someday, yeah. perhaps they will. Uh, but yeah, that was that was the first movie that all four of us went to the theater and saw. That, that is pretty significant in its own right. Yes, it is. We got we got to talk about a movie, okay? Because that's what we're here for. We're here okay. to talk about a specific movie that you guys are just dying to know what it is because because um, well, you already know because it's probably yeah, in the title, in the title of the episode. Because what would be, why um, why wouldn't we do that? So as you know, our our podcast is is what's it about? It's about Phil and Dustin pick. Usually what we'll do is we'll pick one movie and we'll talk about it. We'll talk about how we feel about it. We'll give you some nuggets of information about it, some background information. And um, hopefully you'll enjoy parts of it a little bit. And it'll be kind of fun. I'm already starting to see some themes in watching. We're only on the third movie and there are some people that are recurring that we talked about in the first and second episodes just already. So. We might gather um, gather together some of those. Well, that's bound to happen if we stick to the 1980s time frame. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, so far, I guess Which, the, the most recent movie would be Misery, and that was 1990. Well, this is just a little bit of a brief sort of intro for those of you who may have decided you didn't care to hear episodes one and two. And, and you went right to this one because you really want to hear us talk about Three O'Clock High. Episode three, dedicated to Three O'Clock High. I have very fond memories of this movie. Um, sorry, our, the light the, the light in the, our recording studio is on a, a motion sensor, and it went out, and Phil was momentarily terrified. <laughs> well, uh, I'm afraid of the dark. Yes. That's, about movie, that's more about movie number four. You know, we Phil, Phil was once credited as chief light waiver guy in, what, in a Dork Brigade production. Not he true made, at all. No, it is true. I've, it's actually written. It's Why in is a video. It the light not sensing my motion? Because your motion isn't big enough. You got to get up and you got to move around, and then it'll move on. Or you, we just deal with it. Dustin is walking away from the microphone, leaving me 
here to talk to the audience all by themselves, by myself. So, Three O'Clock High, released in 1987, was directed by Phil Phil, one of the great Phils. Phil Joano, I think is how you pronounce his last name. Um, starring Casey Simasco and Richard Tyson. Casey Simasco. Je- thank you. And Jeffrey Tambor and a variety of other fine folks. Dustin was starting to say how he had some very fond, fond memories of, of the film. Yeah, I, I liked that movie a lot. I saw it when it came out in the theater. And uh, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, went to the movies a lot. And uh, that was one of the ones that I remember seeing and really being taken by the cinematography. Obviously, I like the story. I thought it was funny. It was, it's a dark comedy uh, that takes place in high school. Um, a bully is going to beat up our hero at the end of the day. And so our hero is trying to figure out how he can circumvent this. But there's no escape. He has to ultimately face his destiny with this bully. But the way that the movie is shot, uh, there's a lot of dynamic camera motion. It's um, very stylistic. And I, and I later found out years later that it shared the same cinematographer as one of my favorite visual masterpieces, which is Raising Arizona. I fell in love with cinematography watching that movie and come to find out it's the same guy. And uh, Barry Sonnenfeld who would later go on to direct Adam's Family Movies and the Men in Black films, and among a few others. He did a lot of work with the Coen brothers yes. uh, initially. And, um, yeah, I love the way that the, just the visual style of that movie um, was very entertaining to me. And it stuck with me. And if you'll, you people at home may not be able to see this, but Phil, you might recall some of those skits that I would make where I was just by myself. I would try to employ certain visual aspects that I picked up from Raising Arizona, from Three O'Clock High, from some of those movies where the camera was almost a character in and of itself. Uh, even Army of the Dead, you know, some Sam Raimi-esque stuff. I always loved that visual style. Yep. And uh, this movie is just a, it, it's a great example of that. Yep. No, it's a lot of moving of the camera that you don't often see in your more, more traditionally shot films. One thing I noticed the last time I, I watched this, just last in the last week or whatever, was that that was one of the, my big memories of that of that movie. Of course, was that cinematography, and be, because of that, I think it took sort of an outsized place in my memory. And I was expecting it to be flashier than it was. When I saw it this last time, it felt like there wasn't as much of that flashy camera because I remembered, which is not a bad thing. It was totally good because if there was more, it might have been too much. <laughs> there were some very well placed like camera movements here and there yeah. and then it, you know and i think you know when we when we go back to our memory our mind's eye version of it from way back when what did we have to compare it to we had th- so many movies were a lot more static they didn't have that sort of whimsical camera use that a movie like that has whereas today the camera's flying all over the place you know with cg with uh just the the various forms of equipment they have having a camera that is all over the place. It's almost just sort of like taken for granted. I don't know that they do it as well or as uh, well placed as they do in a movie like that, like three o'clock high or raising Arizona. But I think it's easier to, you know, with what we see today and then compare it to then it's like, well, I don't know. Was it, was it all that? And it's like, well, yeah, it was, especially if you look at it in a, as the time capsule that it is. For its time, it really was. It was really unique and it was really different. 
One thing I noticed about Barry Sonnenfeld in this movie is that he's credited as lighting consultant, I think. Yeah. At the beginning. Yeah. There was in there, I forget the director said something, I think, in the commentary about. He wasn't union. There you go. So he was not allowed to be hired in this union shop as director of photography. So though he was the director of photography, they had to give him a different credit because he wasn't in the union yet. So that's what happened with that. Because I was watching the, the, I knew that he was the DP of that movie. But then when I was watching the credits and I saw that he was chief, that he was a lighting consultant. And I'm like, I almost said chief, life, chief light waiver guy. <laughs> well, that's, you could call him that. Um, but yeah, it's because he, this, this movie's weird. And, and I'm, we're probably jumping the gun on some of the things we were going to talk about here. But it's weird in the sense that he was sort of a, he ghost DP'd it in a sense. And Steven Spielberg ghost produced it. Yes. Because this was a movie that was brought to the director by Steven Spielberg, who'd seen the script and thought, hey, I think this guy might make a good version of this. And But Spielberg didn't own it. It was owned by Aaron Spelling. Aaron Spelling didn't want to let it go. So they're just like, well, we'll just leave your name on it, Aaron Spelling. But Steven Spielberg and Amblin will ghost produce it, but they won't show up anywhere on the credits, which I think is odd it's a weird thing who wouldn't who wouldn't want his name especially in the 80s why who wouldn't want his name on that movie well i get the impression that it wasn't so much that amblin didn't want their name on it it's that they couldn't because aaron spelling's name had to be as the right i guess but my point is like as aaron spelling oh when you want that association i guess aaron spelling i mean he was huge in tv and you know whatever yeah. at the time but i would just think that that would be something that you'd be like hey i i'll Put my name next to his. Why wouldn't you want oh, that? Oh, you mean, I'm sorry. I'm t- why wouldn't Aaron Spelling want his name next to Spielberg yeah. on the same film? Absolutely. Exactly. That's a good question. Absolutely. And that was a little tidbit that I don't think I knew until recently preparing for this episode. Yeah, Spielberg's I involvement. I mean, I, I had no idea. I didn't know. Um, I guess Phil Joanno had worked on a couple episodes of Amazing Stories, and uh, which was a... If, you all don't know was a Steven Spielberg produced short-lived as I recall good television oh, uh, yeah. series I, I watched um, every episode I really enjoyed 80s. that show I like to get my hands on on those I'm sure they must be available and so yeah they're on uh, Apple TV plus I believe wow yeah I, well, I, I watched a couple episodes because they have a new ver- they had a new version well when, when Apple TV plus began as a streamer one of their shows was amazing stories and so they've got at least they had the old ones on there along with the the new versions that they had one of my fa- i i'm going to i'm going to we digress a I'm little i'm going to digress a lot okay. <laughs> cuz i have a, i have a okay. favorite episode that i watched from amazing stories um called mummy daddy the original one the original the, one okay the original amazing stories it's not one that phil juanu directed but uh i i love it it's called mummy daddy and if you ever i'm not going to talk about it too much cuz it's not what we're here for but if you get a chance to go back Watch Amazing Stories. Check out that episode. It's great. It's fantastic. Duly noted. I remember watching the show, but I don't remember any of them, really. But 3 o'clock high, we have Buddy Ravel comes to this high school from out of What a great name, too. That is a good name. It's a good name for a a bully. So is Jerry Mitchell. That's such a regular guy name, (laughs) and that's what you've got. You've got regular guy Jerry Mitchell facing off against bully. Buddy Ravel. I mean, it's, Although, that guy is really good. Is Buddy Ravel really a bully? 
at least from what we see, maybe he did some did, bullying in the past. Did you did you see him shove Jerry Mitchell into the urinal and repeatedly flush it on his crotch? Jerry touched him. He knew he wasn't supposed to touch him. Jerry did not know that. Jerry didn't know that at that time. He didn't know he that didn't he wasn't supposed to touch him. He wasn't. He, no, he was in the student store yeah, when everybody else was talking about it. That's right. That's okay. this is why I'm here, folks, <laughs> to explain. Uh, that Jerry, Jerry didn't know. He he didn't have that information. We never see him get that information. But he does overreact. I'd say. On numer, numerous occasions. Yeah. But does he go out of his way to harass people? You know what? I'm going to walk back what I'm saying. <laughs> because he is a bully. Because, sure, he overreacts. He sets up this fight with Jerry at 3 o'clock. I'm going to fight you. He cares an awful lot about fighting this one little kid, regular guy. Yeah, who's half his size. Right. Just because he touched him. Like, he can't just kind of get over it as the yeah. day progresses. I'm it's like, like, you know, they mention, you know, when all the p- kids are talking about the rumors, they say that he's touch-phobic. Like, if you touch him, he'll, you know, he'll want to murder you. So it's like, you kind of get, okay, well, maybe if I'm going to stretch really far, I can say that he got touched, he overreacted, he flushed the urinal onto Jerry Mitchell's pants. Okay, but then it's done. But no, it wasn't done. And then he's like, he slams him up into a mirror and shatters the mirror and basically says, I'm going to beat you up at three today. And there's nothing you can do about it. I think that's bullying behavior from I, me. You're right. Not from me. I didn't do it. I wouldn't do that. But Oh, and then there's the character of Jerry Mitchell, who's established as sort of this regular, average, good high school kid who never gets into any trouble and who certainly is not physically confident and if he needs to get into a fight with anybody and wants to avoid, he is um, chosen to write an article for the school paper about the new student. Yeah. And that's why he approaches Buddy and how they get into their initial physical altercation. Now, the casting choice here of Casey Shimasco. Shimasco. Shimasco uh, is great because he's not somebody that was a star by any means before or since in terms of being in these sort of teen movies, um, which was already well-established as a thing by 1987. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to see him play this sort of average kid role, and he's not like a glamorous, you know... Yeah, he's across the board average. He has an average kid haircut. He's not, he doesn't stand out in any way. He's wearing corduroy pants and a sweater, basically, through most of this movie. As you mentioned, he wasn't a star. Nobody in this movie was a star. Everybody was an unknown. That's pretty much what they were going for. But it is speckled with recognizable character actors. At least one was actually in one of the other movies that we talked about during our episode two podcast, Philip Baker Hall. Oh, Philip Baker Hall, of course. And his role is a great example of one of the things that makes this movie good is these supporting bit players who take their roles seriously and and really punch it and and, and give it a, a seriousness, you know, underneath the comedy that gives some weight and some stakes to the proceedings. Sure. So we had established that the new the new student comes to school and he's an imposing figure who comes with a legend of rumors behind him of being a troublesome uh, bully type of student. He gets into we talked about how he meets up with Jerry Mitchell. Buddy Ravel sets up the fight that's going to happen at three o'clock. I'm going to meet you at three o'clock and beat you up. So the film is structured in this deadline. It takes place during this one day at school. And it's structured with this deadline of 3 o'clock. And between 
the beginning of the film at 3 o'clock. Jerry Mitchell is constantly trying to find ways to get out of this fight. You know, um, various ways of trying to get himself in trouble so he gets kicked out of school or various things like that. He tries to bribe, not bribe, he, he, try, he pays another student in the school, a football player type guy, to beat up, try to beat up Buddy for him. He does various things like that. Well, he try, I know he tries to flee and he run, has a run-in with a security guard. Right. He, uh, his, his friend who has kind of gotten us into this at one point plants a switchblade oh, that's right. in Buddy's locker and then plants a note in the principal's office. Jerry doesn't think that's a good idea. And so <laughs> independently, they are trying to figure things out. Um, but, but Buddy always seems like he's a little step ahead in a way of of Jerry's um, attempts. The, the switchblade gets planted. When Jerry tries to flee the school, he finds that same switchblade stabbed into his steering wheel with a note right. saying there is no escape. So clearly, Buddy is always a step ahead. Absolutely. Towards the end there, there's the scene that shows me probably more perfectly than any, any other scene how much ahead of everybody else Buddy Ravel is. And it's the scene where they're going to take the math quiz. And Buddy needs help. He, he needs the answers to the quiz. And so I think Jerry, thinking, hey, maybe this will ingratiate me a little bit. And Buddy won't want to peel my face off if I give him, give him the answers. So they do that. But then they get busted. And there's a, a good scene in there with the, the principal or the vice principal. And, uh, you know, they're caught cheating. Well, Jerry take, falls in the grenade. And he says, I was lost I was cheating off of Buddy. And so in order to prove that that was the case, the principal has Buddy. Well, if you can answer these two math questions, then clearly Jerry's telling the truth. Uh. And so you expect Buddy's going to go up there and he's not going to be able to be able to answer these questions. But he gets them right. He knew the answers. He was just conning Jerry. He was, again, playing another little mind game. I was with gonna, this character. Yeah, I was going to ask, well, if he really knows how to do the math, why does he try to cheat off Jerry? Because because he <laughs> because because he it's just another way to rattle this guy. Because clearly that's 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 just his nature. He's he's a guy who doesn't really seem to like people in general, or at least he doesn't have respect for people, which I want which I'll come back to at another point because I think I don't think that stays true throughout the entire movie. I think in the end he does give Jerry that respect. Well, before we get to that part, let's talk a little bit more about the Buddy Ravel character and sense and consider, is he a one-dimensional bully that we hate that's just set up to be this uh, device for, to, for Jerry Mitchell's character to, to, to work with? Or is he given any sympathy at all? Are, are there moments in the film before the end where... We, we feel like this character has some sort of a, a background, a reason why he is the way he is. Any sympathy? Is he misunderstood? For a lot of the movie, I sort of uh, see him almost like the shark in Jaws. It, it's this impending threat that even if it's not attacking you right there, you know it's out there and you know that attack is coming. And they never really give you a background to say, here's why he's the way he is. You know, it's not like... John Bender in The Breakfast Club, where they give you some stories. Say, here's why John Bender is the way John Bender is. They don't give you that. 
at least as far as I could see with Buddy Ravel. They don't talk about that. He is just this monolithic, thuggish guy who just wants to keep to himself. And if you disturb his personal peace in any way, you will pay the ultimate price for it. But I think that they hint at him having that he's not just some like dumb brute, that there is an intellectual side to him. Obviously, he knows the answers to the math quiz. There's the scene in the library. He's just he's sitting in the library. Here's this kind of leather jacket, blue jean wearing guy sitting in the library quietly, peacefully, just reading a book to himself. I really tried to see what book he was reading, but I couldn't read the title on the book. I was curious if that would lend anything, uh, if they made a conscious choice of a certain book for him. But I couldn't quite see it. Not that you mentioned that scene. That's interesting, because what is he exactly doing there at that particular time? I think he's just reading. Is it lunchtime? It is lunchtime. And why would he? Okay, and that's where he's going to go to have some peace during his lunch hour. I think so. Well, he's not going to want to. He's not going to want to be in the cafeteria with all the kids because he doesn't like oh, people. He doesn't yeah. want people knowing about him. He says that many times. I don't like people knowing about me. I'm glad you mentioned that scene because I wanted. I liked that scene because when the football player approaches him to try to be tough, and here's the guy that's going to basically bully him out of being a bully to somebody else, which I think is kind of an interesting concept. But I love Buddy Ravel's initial reaction. Like, he just kind of sighs a little bit. Maybe, I don't know if he really rolls his eyes, but you get that, like, I just want to be left alone. Yeah. Like, I'm just trying. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, you're not going to bother me. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of anything. And then the guy makes the mistake of touching him and loses the function of one of his fingers and a couple of his teeth in the process. So, yeah, I don't think, to come back to your original question, yeah, there's not any specific thing that says, okay, here's why we need to have understanding for Buddy Ravel. It's not there, and I don't think it needed to be there. That's not the story that they're telling. This isn't the story of how Buddy Ravel came to be, how he is. That could be potentially an interesting story, but it's not the one that they're there to tell. They're there to tell, here's how Jerry Mitchell survives this horrible day and buddy Ravel is just the hurdle that Jerry finally needs to, to leap over in order to uh, find, I guess a, a new uh, appreciation for himself. Yes. When Phil Joano was making this movie, it was apparent that in the original script that this was very much kind of like a John Hughesy teen comedy and John Hughes made, very good teen comedy. So why try to replicate that? Let's make something a little different. Let's tweak this a little bit and make it a little, a little darker, a little edgier, uh, more of a black comedy. And so you got permission to sort of rewrite the script. And with that kind of turned the notion a little bit on its ear. I mean, the color palette is a little, is a little more drab. It's mm-hmm. not as bright and flashy. I mean, these kids are still wearing eighties clothes. I mean, this is still an eighties movie, but uh, it's got this sort of mutedness to it. I don't think anything is played over the top. Everything is still pretty grounded outside of the camera work. Nobody is winking at the camera, I guess is what I mean to say. Because you can point to a number of like John Hughes movies where there's a sure. lot of winking at the camera. I mean, some of it's literal, like you know Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but then others, you know, weird science, things like that, where it's a little more, yeah, we're just being goofy here. This movie was sort of like, not super campy. 
Oh, absolutely not campy. No, I, no. When you started to say that you didn't think it was over the top, I was going to. You're going to say you're wrong. No, no, not that you're wrong. But you're then, wrong. But then I heard you speak some more than you. You kind of came around to it. It's, Sometimes it's not figure overly out over the top by any means, but there is definitely a heightened sense of reality. I mean, one of the first things I think of is the uh, security guard and the the other the, the, the disciplinarian. Other disciplinarian guy, the two characters with the bald heads. This is a little heightened. It, a little, it, it, it is. Not over the top. Not too. Well, that's the, it know, teeters but, up to the edge, but doesn't, yeah. I don't think it ever crosses it. We, well, even we, Buddy Ravel is a little. Yeah, almost over definitely the up there, but it's like, <laughs> but I don't think it's like to the point of, of parody. One thing I was struck by when sort of hearing everyone's commentary tracks and different things about the movie was how meticulously kind of planned out the film was in terms of it being shot listed and certain sequences storyboarded. Not not a lot of improv at all, you know. It was pretty meticulously uh, planned out. I, and you can tell when you have a movie that's stylistically like that, I, I think you need to really have it well planned out when you go into it, especially when you're under a really tight schedule like this movie it was shot in 30 days, fairly low budget, and uh, time is not your friend. And they shot it in an actual functioning high school. There were actually kids in that high school in Utah where they shot the film in class. And he mentions that every hour, the bell would ring, the halls would fill with students, and they had to wait until that was over before they could resume shooting. So seven times a day, the movie would be interrupted, and they'd lose their momentum, and then they would have to keep on going. That had to be supremely frustrating to be on the clock, not just on the day, but on the hour. You had to be on the clock. You're, you're trying to beat the clock every hour for your setup, for your lighting, for your shooting, for your rehearsing, and all that stuff. You're trying to really cram into just these little hour nuggets. And, I mean, you had you really had to be supremely prepared and had to have all your shots. You had to have your storyboards. You had to have your weekend rehearsals down pat because otherwise, yeah, you're going to lose. You're going to lose hours. Then you're going to quickly lose days. And then you're going to quickly mm-hmm. lose your job. Mm-hmm. And it was remarkable, uh, among all of that, he did not, I think there was, of all the, I don't know how many days there were of shooting, but. 30. Okay. There was, I think there was only one that he said that, that they went over mm-hmm. and they couldn't finish everything they wanted to do yes. that day. So it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. He um, mentions he got a, he got a, um, a phone call from Mr. Spielberg <laughs> and said, you can have one extra day. How generous. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> there will be no others. You will never, you will not miss any other days. And I think when Mr. Spielberg tells you that, you listen. Um, and speaking of that high school, it was interesting too that they specifically chose that high school because they want to add to that heightened sense of reality and the doom and foreboding of this day and this deadline approaching and this sort of dreary high school existence on this particular day. They specifically chose this very foreboding gothic style almost prison yeah. uh, type large building which they couldn't find in Southern California no so they had to go to Utah to, to find this high school to make this movie that school was very imposing it just it did not look like a friendly place to want to go every day and you pair that with the security guard the disciplinarian and who just basically seemed more like a warden than anything else and yeah it they really pulled off the prison vibe 
On a brief side note, you know what high school I've often thought might be kind of a photogenic sort of high school in a movie that might lend itself cinematically in some good ways? I'm going to guess Ferndale High School. I'm going to guess the high school, to say the high school we went to, mainly because of, so it's a square and on the inside there's this big open courtyard with grass and stuff. So if you're in the middle of it and then you look at the building, there's three floors and there's three levels. Uh, and uh, and they're all windows, and so you can see the hallway of each of these three levels. So I could I often picture this shot of students in between classes, and you can see them walking back and forth on the three levels of. I just think it would be visually uh, an interesting. They should use it in the movie. I don't know why no one's thought of it yet. And there's other aspects of the building too that uh, could be good. <laughs> actually, the the it was featured in a movie directed by Scott Screws, a guy I went to high school with. <laughs> While he w- he was in high school, well, there you go. <laughs> I was an extra in the hallway during a shot, and I did some. Uh, but did he get some, a shot? Some of camera the students work. walking on three levels of the. No, he didn't get that shot. The glass. I mean, no. If you had been there to suggest it, I think maybe it would have happened. Actually, I, I don't. I don't know. It was it was a student movie, obviously. We died, but uh, but yeah, it, I agree with you. That that high school does lend itself. I think it, there's a lot of character there. At least there was. I haven't been there in a very long time. Phil just smiled at me in a really weird way. <laughs> we um, were talking a little bit about 80s teen movies and how this one's different. I know why he smiled. He oh, found what a are note. Some of he's the like, things, I have a what note. Are some of the <laughs> I take terrible notes. What are some of the things that make this different from your typical teen 80s movie? And what is a typical teen? When we say typical teen 80s movie, does that basically mean John Hughes? Or are there <sighs> other teen movies that are typical? Yeah. Well, I, f- I find that there was basically in the uh, in the 80s, if you broke them out by subgenre, there were three kinds of of 80s teen movies. One is basically the the John Hughesy 80s comedy. Then there was the more raunchy 80s comedy where, you know, there was usually like yeah. scantily clad bikini women and everybody's just trying to get late. That's the whole that's the whole purpose of those movies then you had the other ones which is sort of like um john hughes made a number of them the the 80s teen drama i didn't watch as many of those i think those tended to be uh, more geared towards i don't know girls at least that's what the way i felt at the time and i was just like eh, it's icky i want to laugh uh so i would Fair watch enough. the other ones whereas this one i don't know that it falls into any of those categories it's sort of its own little beast yeah um, there's a lot of things in it that are a little different from nor- like the little sister character in most movies is just is in the annoying obnoxious little sister or brother. Yeah. You know, in this movie, she's kind of the wise conscience yeah. and advice giving person to Jerry, even though she's younger. That's an interesting twist. And there's not a strong love interest. There's a little bit of a love interest with the character, but it's not really the a big piece of the story like a lot of these movies might tend to normally make it a bigger I found that I thought I thought that little bit was kind of interesting um with uh Jerry Mitchell has this friend named Franny that uh seems more like uh just a friend to him but through her actions and statements you get the impression that she wants to be more than that and she is a very quote-unquote spiritual person and she has what she calls a spirit guide named Ethan good name I don't know. She sort of gives off, at least uh, on paper, she seems like she's like kind of more of a flighty, 
airy kind of um, character, but I don't know that it's played necessarily that way. I think she no, plays I, it yeah. a little more grounded, but with still this level of, yeah, by the way, I have this spirit guide who I will talk yeah. to later. Uh, <laughs> but never again, tiptoeing up to the edge, but never really crossing the line. There's a little bit of a goth girl feel to her, but no. yeah. But anyway, she's got a thing, clearly, and she wants to, quote unquote, bond with Jerry. Do the deed. You know, the deed. The the sex, I think the kids call it. Um, Is that what they're calling it these days? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't uh, know. You and I wouldn't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, you didn't know then, we don't know now. <laughs> I, 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 you're darn right. Um but uh, yeah, so uh, in fact, there's an there's a scene where she's like, "Well, I think it's time for this to happen," and she's made a little bed in the student store and she's lit candles and she's like, "It's time for us to bond." Even though he's going through this horrible, rotten, miserable day, she's like, "This is the time that we need yeah, stress relief." Yeah, you know, <laughs> you, you know, you may be onto something there. And he doesn't really. He's just sort of like, at this point, I don't even know what to do. And they step in and they kiss. And, it, and I think that kiss makes her feel different. And I don't mean different like, oh, I don't like him anymore. I think it's like, oh, I like him more than maybe I thought. And I don't know that I can do this bonding thing so casually at this point. At least that's the way I took it. I think after that kiss, she's like oh, wow, I, I feel more than I even thought I might. And then she leaves. And so then he's like, they're going, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> There's a makeshift bed here. She just kissed me. I'm going to die at the end of the day. And you just sort of uh, really feel his his frustration as it both peaks and valleys. It's like you get this sense that his tension rises and then it sometimes you see this resignation, like he's just like this. I, I I don't even know what to do anymore. This is just probably my last day on earth. <laughs> yeah, and the, uh, just another example. Great acting from Casey for sure. I kind of liked this. There was the stereotypical one-dimensional hot girl in the school mm-hmm. who pops up two or three times, and um, really not much is done with her character, and you know. She comes back at the end to kind of pay some respect, you know, to Jerry, as, as, as does the rest of the school. But I liked that when the last shot, I just was kind of struck me when it cuts across to her and she kind of she kind of glides into the shot. And then there's like the two girls behind her standing right behind her. She just always has this entourage of two girls behind her holding these books like like they do in these 80s movies. Mm-hmm. She's almost almost she struck uh, for some reason I was reminded of like. The emperor and the imperial guard behind him. <laughs> behind him. <laughs> I don't know why. When you learn that this movie was written one way and then rewritten to be something else, I, you can kind of feel the holdovers. And I think that character, that um, quote unquote hot girl, would, I think in, in any other story, would be almost like this sort of focus. Like, here's the uh, unattainable thing that I'm going to try to go after while not noticing the perfect, wonderful thing that's right under my nose, which would be Franny, you know, that that would be more of a focus and potentially the original. I don't know that for a fact, but that's what it seems like it would be. But then in the writing of this, they're like, you know, we're going to pull back from that a little bit. And so we can focus on these other things, but we'll still have those little undercurrents, those those little, those little notes that are just sort of below the main riff. Mm -hmm. 
comes back to my thing where I think that while it's heightened, they pulled back on certain things to kind of give it a little more groundedness. And I think that's one of the, one of the decisions that was made sort of pull back from that a little bit. And so that's not so not cheesy, you know? Yeah. Um, There's not a lot of cheese factor here. No. Well, what do we think about that fight scene at the end? One noteworthy thing I learned was that Barry Sonnenfeld was not present because he was sick during a lot of that fight scene, which is remarkable because the fight scene, of course, has a lot of crazy camera things going on, you know? Well, I think the upside was that it was shot. It was the last scene that they shot, or at least uh, in main production. It was the last they saved the fight scene for the last week and it took five days to shoot. I think at that point you've had so much work and experience with Barry and his style and everything. So I think it probably made it easier for them to, to fill in and give it that cohesive vision and structure and style that it might not have had were it the first thing that they shot. But I think uh, the, just the notion that that scene was shot over five days with varying numbers of extras that they were allowed to include that they had access to. They didn't have like all 200 kids for every day. They had all 200 kids for one day. And then they had maybe 50 kids for another day. And then maybe 15 kids for a third day. And then they had to get all these different right. shots in there. And it was shot completely out of sequence. Right. I mean, that that sort of thing, when I think about filmmaking, that I don't know that a lot of people necessarily think about is how things are often shot out of order, but not just scenes out of order. But th- yeah. moments within scenes are shot out of order. And that just is a testament to structuring things well in advance, rehearsing things well in advance, so that you're giving yourself the best chance of success, knowing your limitations. So this movie, I think, was made for $5 million, was the budget. Um, it didn't do very well upon release. Um I actually did not see it in the theater. We didn't talk about my experience. No, we didn't. Please tell I me. I forgot. I didn't see it in the theater. 1987, I wasn't going to the theater that much. I don't think quite as much as you. But I definitely came to this movie uh, shortly thereafter when it was on cable a lot. I don't, I think I'm sure, I don't remember if I had seen it at your recommendation or if I had already seen it a couple of times before you mentioned it. But um, it's definitely something that I, I caught on cable a few times shortly after it came out. And I always enjoyed it. But it did not play at a lot of theaters it didn't do gangbusters business it was a flop it was a failure but they didn't even market it you know that's one of the things that he mentions uh in it is that uh that when when it came time for marketing they said this movie there's like this movie isn't going to do anything so we're not going to spend any money on it like well it's definitely not going to do anything if you don't spend any money on it but and then did you get a chance to read any reviews that anybody might have written about the film, either when it came out or more recently? No, I, I read uh, Roger Ebert's review. He was very unkind. I think he pretty much called the movie stupid. He spent some time like talking about like, high school and whatever. He didn't spend a lot of time talking about the movie. He just basically said that it was dumb. He didn't like it. Would you say, I feel like this podcast is a podcast about Phil interviewing Dustin, <laughs> asking you questions. And that's how we keep the conversation going. He, in Roger Ebert's review, which I also read, he, um, I was going to ask you now, it's a, it is unkind, but do we feel like it's unfair? I, I would suggest maybe it's a little bit unfair. It might, comes across a little bit as one of those reviews that 
he's reviewing the movie he wished he'd seen. But it wasn't that movie he wanted to. See, which yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I was always hot and cold with Siskel and Ebert. Mm-hmm. There were there were very few uh, uh, movie reviewers, critics, whatever you want to call them. I, they're different, honestly, but few movie reviewers that I ever felt like truly like aligned with my taste. There was one for the Detroit free press back in the nineties. That was very close to my taste. If they liked a the movie, I tend to like the movie. If they didn't like it, I didn't like it. It just, it really lined up and I can't remember that, that person's name, but that was one of those rare moments where just about every movie kind of fell in that way with Ebert. Um, I always felt like if he really liked something, he, he really liked it, but I don't know. I don't feel like he gave every movie, the chance I think he went in like a lot of people do with a preconceived notion of, I think this movie is probably going to suck. This movie is probably not going to be worth my time, but this is my job. So I'm going to watch this movie and have it confirm all my preconceived notions. And I sort of feel like that might be what happened here. Teach their own. Let's talk. Yeah. What do we think about the film? Like I said, I, I really, really enjoyed it when I was, when I was young, do I have the same reverence for it now? Does it hold up as well now? Um, probably not, but I still enjoyed it. I feel like movies these days have to be so much more fast-paced than movies that back in the day, I felt like they were quickly paced back then. And maybe it's just a, a case of the fact that I've seen it many, many times, and so I know what's going to happen, and so it maybe it feels like it takes a little longer, but I felt like this wasn't as paced as quickly as what I remembered. So whether or not it holds up as well to what I thought then, probably not. Did I still like it? Yeah. I still enjoy the movie. The style is cool. I, I, I really enjoy the aesthetic of that movie. I think you and I are in more or less pretty good agreement here on, on a lot of those points. I still like the movie. Um, so many of the acting performances, I just enjoy seeing the supporting characters and the bit players walk on and take their role seriously and, and nail their, their parts. I think there are moments that, that again, like have maybe it's a little holdover from the way the script was originally written that feel a little thin or one dimensional, you know, but nothing that takes away from the overall feel of the movie. You know, ultimately, is Buddy Ravel a little too one-dimensional and not believable as a real human being. I don't know. Maybe, (laughs) Um, but I don't think they, that's, I don't think the movie cares and whether you fault the movie for that or whether you, a lot of movies when it comes to movies that are, especially movies that aren't super great, like this one is good and it has some, has the, has flaws. How you much you enjoy the film just depends on your personal taste and style and how much you choose to overlook certain flaws in favor of the things you like about them. It's just your choice. To give a small foreshadowing, we'll play heavily into episode four of our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Very, very well done. Um, I I do want to uh, mention that, um, you know, when I think about a character like Buddy Ravel, I knew people uh, in high school. You know, I think we would have called them burnouts, um, but the dudes in jeans and leather jackets, long hair that weren't necessarily the friendliest. I knew some of them. One of them actually lived in my basement for a short time. He was a perfectly nice guy. If you knew him, if you didn't know him, you knew what he wanted you to know. And that was that he was 
big, long-haired, gruff, tough. And I think having had that experience that when I look at a character like Buddy Ravel, I think that's that's the same that the same thing is true for them. He's a character that wants you to know what he wants you to know. And I think them trying to work in extra stuff so that we can better understand him almost betrays that character in a way. He doesn't want anyone to know about him. That includes us. There is not going to be an article written because you can't control his narrative. We don't get to know his past, but by virtue of his present, we get to see that he is intelligent. He is calculating just like the shark and jaws. And just like the shark and jaws, we don't need to see the shark's home life, you know, to get it. And on top of that, I think Buddy prefers the rumors. He prefers the reputation, which I think reveals itself during the fight. He actually gets clocked for the first time by Jerry. And he's like, what? You, you, you see his eyes dart around like he's like, did anybody see this? Because he, he doesn't want people knowing about him. But he clearly cares about what they think about him. Basically, he allows himself to be framed as this big bad monster. That way he can avoid having to interact with people. But now he now getting popped, you know, even if it was a lucky shot, that might somehow allow those rumors to begin unraveling. And there goes his reputation. So now he has to be even more ruthless. So out come the brass knuckles, which had been mentioned earlier in the rumors about Buddy. And as we all know the rule, you can't show a gun and not use the gun. You know, the same is true with the brass knuckles. And so they come out, but then other people try to intervene in the fight and he loses the brass knuckles. And Jerry's sister retrieves them and gives them to Jerry. And so Jerry dodges a punch, which I thought was a really cool shot. And, and then he retaliates with the brass knuckles and pops them right in the face. And and you see when Buddy gets hit in the face and he kind of kind of looks at Jerry as if to say, damn, you, you did it. You got me. And it's this sort of brief fleeting thing. And then the light kind of goes out in his eyes a bit and, and he just collapses on the ground and he's out. And so Jerry wins the fight. But there's just that flash for a moment that he's like, you did it, you know, good for you. Even though Jerry won the fight, he's not out of trouble yet. Because something that we forgot to talk about is that in order to get the money to bribe the football player, Jerry had to break into the student store he student managed and, and he had to trash it and make it look like a robbery so that he could get the money from the till and, and use that to pay the football player. Well, after the football guy fails, Vincent, Jerry's buddy, manages to get a chunk of that money back, but not all of it, because after all, football jock did lose teeth. So anyway, Jerry finally decides that with this money that he has now, he's going to use that to try to literally buy his way out of the fight. So he goes directly to Buddy to try and pay him off. And, and Buddy takes it. He takes the bribe. He's like, fine. Yeah. But you're the biggest pussy I've ever seen. I mean, you didn't even try. How does that make you feel? And then Jerry realizes it, uh, doesn't make him feel so good. So then he said, the fight's back on. Now, did he make that decision to go forward with the fight? Was that where, remember there's a scene where he goes up on the roof, yeah. on the rooftop by himself? That's when he makes the decision to kind of come back down. What the one interesting thing I learned was that um, they had a scene with the wise little sister was going to be on the rooftop with him. And yes. Help convince him to go forward with the fight. And they made the choice to cut that out. 
so Jerry could make that decision on his own. And I think that was a good choice. Yeah, that, that's the, that was the, he had to come to that himself. He couldn't be talked into it. So the fact that the fight happens at all is because Jerry is trying to reclaim a portion of himself that maybe he didn't know he had. And if he did, he let it go and he's trying to get it back. And maybe in this day and age, it's a little toxic in terms of masculinity. But at the time, you know, you didn't really think about that too much. But in any event, so now he's stuck because he's got he's got he's got to deal with the student store. It's been trashed. He doesn't have the money. So. What's he going to do? Yeah, he won the fight, but he's still in trouble because the police are going to want to talk to him about this being an inside job. He's screwed. You know, if the cops come, he's got to somehow replace the money. And that's when the student body comes through for him because his friend Vincent Costello, the one who got him into this mess to begin with, he basically spreads around. It's like, guys, we need to help him out. And so everybody comes to the store to buy some paper, but they just want one sheet of paper for a dollar a sheet. And so next thing you know, just throngs of students are showing up the student store just to buy sheets of paper for a dollar each. And before you know it, they just got this pile of money. And of course, now this student store is full of all these all these students. And then everything falls silent and everybody turns. Here comes Buddy Ravel, who stands a good foot over everybody else, you know, and he just comes walking in. He's got a little bruise under his eye and he raises his fist up to I always loved this scene when I was a kid. He raises his fist up to Jerry And then lowers it back down and then opens his fist and out comes all the money that Jerry had bribed him with. And then they have this shot on Buddy Ravel's face. And there's just the slightest, ever so slight little smile of acknowledgement, basically saying, you're not the pussy I thought you were. You probably heard that if it was in the commentary or the director's interview, I don't remember where. They were directing him and they kept trying to tell him, smile less, smile less. I did hear that. Less of a smile. (laughs) So you can barely see the smile of Richard Tyson. It was good direction. Uh, And I didn't know at the time if that was Richard Tyson's choice. He is the guy who played Buddy Ravel, by the way. Uh, If that was his choice or if that was directed. And I found out later on, clearly it was directed. But I think they landed on a really nice take. It was just so subtle and so perfect. And then Buddy, uh, Buddy Ravel walks out. I know I just rambled a lot. But I want to, there's a few other things that I want to touch on before we wrap this episode up. One, there's a couple of things that happen in this movie that I don't particularly think aged well in terms of today's climate. Uh, Among those is there's a couple of uses of a certain F word. -word. Not that F word. No, no, not the F bomb, but an F word that uh, at the time was probably pretty pretty casually tossed out. But these days, I don't think that you would do that. Um, at least I'm not in this kind of a movie where it's, um, no. you know, while it is a dark comedy, it's still on the lighter side of things. I was going to say earlier, I don't know if they made this movie today, they would have the brass knuckles in it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. And I don't know that they would have the uh, inappropriate scenes, the two scenes oh, with the teacher. The teacher. Yes. I'm not sure if that scene worked, that, that whole idea worked that well. Just in general, much less not working today. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't right. mind the the first scene, but then the last scene where the teacher comes back, yeah. which was a last minute addition. It wasn't actually like shot with the rest of the movie. They just decided, well, we need to pay that off in some way. So those were a couple of things that I just kind of want to point out that I thought were a little problematic upon a, a viewing some twenty four years after I'd seen Fair it last. Enough. Fair enough. Well, I guess before we wrap up. 
and talking more about some of the things I liked about it. You know, we didn't talk. I'm sorry. This is Phil interviewing Dustin about the. Um, we didn't talk too too much about he's the. Just, um, he's just going to gloss right over that narrative st- structure of the film. We, we you know obviously we know about the three o'clock deadline and everything like that, but it was just interesting how they played up the clocks and the ticking clock, and you uh, see the clocks in the background everywhere and all that stuff. It had sort of a you know a high noon obviously inspiration to it. Another movie that the director mentioned he liked very much and inspired him was After Hours, directed by Martin Scorsese. Which also bears a little bit of a relationship to episode number four of our podcast. <laughs> but, um, so, and After Hours is a very good movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, and it's something we could t- talk about. Uh, yeah, I def- about it's ourselves. definitely, when we were making our lists for movies that we want to talk about, it's on my list. Um, so, yeah, at some point, there will probably be a, an episode. And Roger Ebert mentioned a movie in his review um, called My Bodyguard. You know, I still which, have not seen that movie. Neither have I. That's but one I, I should check out. I own it, and I'll let you know what I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, I'm definitely going to watch it. My, I think my sister's seen it, but it, Chris Makepeace and um, the non-Baldwin Baldwin. Ah. What the heck was his first You're name? You're very impressive with your mach- machine there. What do you call that thing with all the dials on it? It's an audio the mixer? Listen, the audio mixer. See, I'm not the tech end of the production here. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the, the, I'm the, the producer, the actual, uh, like, the audio producer while we're doing this. So every now and then I got to fiddle with a knob. Okay. So we liked the film. Is there anything else that we wanted to touch on real quick before we wrap up and maybe go to our end of episode segments? Just real quick. The movie is riddled with character actors that have shown up um, that that people would see them go, Hey, I know them. And the one that, one that I, I, I kind of, she looked kind of familiar to me, but I didn't know until, I watched the uh, the commentary track that the nurse is the same actress that portrayed Large Marge. Oh yes, in um, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. But uh, Philip Baker Hall, we mentioned him. Jeffrey Tambor. We didn't talk about nearly enough. Who's always so great. Yeah, and really, again, I don't want to say choose the scenery because it's not over the top, but he really gets into his role. I think, but he takes his role very seriously as the yeah. store manager. Yes, it, it, you can tell that the um, he's playing that character as if this is a huge part of his life. And the fact that this store has been robbed and trashed has just broken his heart. The uh, security guard, fans of science fiction, classic 90s television show, The X-Files would, would recognize him as their the boss of Mulder and Scully. I never really watched the show, but I know Mitch Pelleggi from that and from a few other things. So he was the, uh, that was one of his early roles. And then the principal. I always know him. Uh, John P. Ryan, I think. is that Yeah. The one? Yeah. It's him. I know him from the right stuff. Primarily. I was always a, a fan of the right stuff. They, they cast the movie pretty well with all those little parts. Everybody I think was pretty, pretty well uh, pitch perfect. Um, in that movie. So again, like you said, I enjoyed the movie. I, out of what, what kind of star rating are we doing? I use a five star rating. Five star, system, but I I often find it. I don't want to get too bogged down on the tangent of how I rating systems. Then whatever, don't. But okay, briefly, I use a five star. <laughs> I use a five star rating system, but I often find it helpful just for myself <laughs> to. Um, <laughs> I find it helpful just for myself. <laughs> To translate it to a, a scale of one to ten, you know. Well, then why um, don't you do a ten star? 
Because on a lot of the apps I use, they, they it's a five star scale, oh, and a lot I of the see. ratings other people use, it's a five star, whatever. But um, I go seven out of ten on this one. Seven is a good movie. Don't let that seem like that's not a good movie to you. I feel like yeah, seven this, is a solid, yeah, like a good. Eight is closer to ten than five. Eight to me is like a like a really good movie. Seven is a good movie. Okay, so what is that extrapolate three and a half to? Stars. Three and a half stars. Okay, all right. Yeah, I was thinking for me probably between three and three and a half. Well, we disagree. <laughs> That's fine. We're allowed. Um, oh, you meant three and see? No, for I, me. <laughs> no, what's what's funny is I thought you meant three or three and a half out of ten, and I thought you were joking. No, <laughs> you meant three or three and a half out of five. Out of stars. five. There you go. Yes, see. yes. <laughs> because no, when I used to use the, if I may now, of course, please, elaborate on what I didn't please, want to elaborate please. on. <laughs> when I used the five star system, what I used to do is. I'd give a movie a five or a four and a half, but if I brought it down to something to a four or three and a half, it always felt like, oh, that's low. Those felt like low ratings to me for some reason. But when I translated it to one out of 10, I was like, oh no, seven or eight, those are good numbers. So now I'm more, it helps me to like not overrate movies too much. It helps me to, whereas otherwise anything I like, I'd give it like a four and a half or a five. Like, no, sevens or eights are good. Even six is a, is a good movie, you know. But real we, quick, we, we, we could talk a little yeah. bit since this is the third episode of our show. We could talk about the third film that you and I went to the theater to see. Yes, and, and th- what did we think about that movie? Well, <laughs> this is why I was mentioning earlier how I don't even par- part of the you reason told me earlier, part of the reason got already part of the reason why we didn't necessarily want to just go down our list of movies that we've seen together is because not all the movies are necessarily worthy of a, a rewatch and B dedicating, uh, even more time beyond that to, to that movie in, in the vein of recording a podcast. No, the movie, the third movie that we saw in the theater together was the classic John Goodman film, King Ralph, King Ralph. Yes. Which I don't think I've ever seen again. I have not. Nor do I have any desire to. No, at the time, did you like it a little bit? Did you I, not? Like I don't. I don't think. I, don't think I we did. did. <laughs> I think it was pretty bad. Um, John Goodman is, have a, a, is some sort of a regular guy, and he discovers for somehow that he's actually the king of something. What happens is remember. the entire royal family oh. dies in a freak accident of some other there's, there's European little country or something. No, I think it's supposed to be England. Oh, England. I think so. It oh, might not hell. be England. It might be some England-like country. Oh, they don't. Um, but basically, the whole royal family gathers for a photo on... I don't know why I remember so much of this. Gathers for a photo, and they all are years at, ago? electrocuted. Years ago that we saw this film. <laughs> yes. Long time ago. But anyway, but the whole royal family, basically, there's like a mishap on the White... on Not the White House, but the uh, the... The royal grounds, right? Exactly, and they all get electrocuted and die, and then they find out that he is now the heir to the throne because of the the bloodline, and so he becomes king, king Ralph. Ralph, and he loved it so much and comedy that comedy hijinks must have ensued. Oh yes, or attempted to ensue. Well, they involved bowling at one point. And there's no higher level of comedy than bowling comedy. Actually, there's <laughs> um, Kingpin is a great movie, by the way. Um, that same year, he guest hosted Saturday Night Live. And he's there, obviously, to pr- promote the movie. But even he knows it isn't good. And he says, yeah, you guys might know me from that juicy little turd, King Ralph. <laughs> That's what he got. 
that's how he referred to it. <laughs> so, funny. so yeah, he knew. He knew. <laughs> so were we prepared to watch that movie again and no. cover it on our show? I am. I don't think I am prepared to dedicate. Not um, even watch it again. Uh, look, it's okay. <laughs> there are there are a lot of other movies I think I'd rather give my time to. I'd rather do Airheads. Some people like Airheads, so I'm have, have an open mind. Some people like Mars Attacks. Oh, hate to bring it up. Oh God. <laughs> oh God. Maybe you weren't ready for the level of parody that that movie was trying. To I'm still not. <laughs> you know, that's one I, I think I actually think about watching that one again to, just to see if my visceral reaction from it the first time was on target or if I have mellowed or I understand it much. Like, for example, Big Lebowski. I didn't really like that movie when I first saw it. Then I saw it like, you know, 18 years later, 15 years later. And I'm like, Hey, I actually, I actually enjoy this movie. This is pretty good. But at the time, whatever frame of mind I was in, it just wasn't the right time. So I might be interested in seeing that one again, just, just to know. But my feelings, though it didn't happen, was my inclination was to walk out of that movie. I've never walked out on a movie of my own volition, but there have been a couple of times that I have wanted to, that was one of them. I remember you walked out of a movie under somebody else's volition. Yes. What? Okay. Uh, me and my sister were with my dad at a movie and my dad hated the movie we were at. And so he made, we left. I think he realized that he took us to see a movie that probably wasn't entirely appropriate or he just didn't like it because we saw lots of inappropriate I movies. So that. I didn't know that was, a so concern. that probably wasn't it. What movie was it? Ah, uh, I think it was like thief of hearts or something mm. dumb like that. I don't know. But I just remember, yeah, he said, all right, we're leaving and got up and we went. So, yeah, smart guy. I have walked out of a movie on, <laughs> under somebody else's uh, directive. But there's two movies that I really wanted to walk out on. Uh, Mars Attacks was one of them. And I remember me and Ethan looking at each other like, can we just go? Can we just leave? But I don't think you wanted to. You didn't want to go, which I don't blame you. And the other movie was Burn After Reading. I went and saw that movie with me, my mom, my wife, and sh and uh, my sister. All different people, by the way. And um, <laughs> and we, we sat in different rows. Me and my wife were in one row, and my sister and my mom were in the row in front of us. And my wife and I just kept looking at each other and like, God, this movie is just so bad. You want I just, I just want to leave. And she's like, yeah, I just want to leave. And apparently my mom and my sister were having the exact same conversation. So at the end of the movie, we told us, and we're just like, oh, man, we could have left and saved an hour of our lives. Yeah, I just hated that movie. That movie is just one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. And there's a lot of people out there who will probably want to fight me on that one. No, so, I will not fight you on that at all. Just, I didn't just hate it, awful. but I, this not, I would not fight you. Not enough of a... The only one that I thought of walking out on that I kind of wanted to... It was actually a James Bond movie. And I'm a James Bond fan. Yeah. Really? One of the Pierce Brosnan James Bond movies, I think the world is not enough. For whatever reason, my frame of mind that day or that time of my life, I just wasn't into that type of James Bond. I don't know. Too, Which one was that? I couldn't even remember? begin to. Something it was the one, one where the nuclear physicist was the hot supermodel type. Oh, movie. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Some and of, it just was. I liked the the first Pierce Brosnan James Bond movie, I enjoyed it. I think maybe even the second one, but then there were, they they just they this is way off the topic, but they just kind of got to a level to where I'm just like this, I can't even do anymore. They, they became kind of almost like a parody, yeah, of James Bond. 
funny though, it's strange that I say that about the world is not enough, but then the fourth one, the last one, Die Another Day, somehow I really enjoyed. Like somehow a switch got flipped in me at some point watching the movie and I was like, oh, this is kind of over-the-top parody a little bit and it's kind of fun. Okay, well. Maybe the next time I watch maybe, The World Is Not Enough, I'll feel good about it. See, I don't know. <laughs> maybe having The World Is Not Enough right between those two helped Prepared you me yeah, subconsciously bridge it. You know, I don't know. Yeah. So what do we do now? Are we done? Let's wrap it up. All right. Bye. If anybody's still listening, join us next time when we discuss a different movie. <laughs> Which we already know because we've already watched it. And we're about to do that episode next. <laughs> two recordings in one day. Yeah, um, that's four in like five months. We're nailing this podcast thing, guys. We are nailing it. And you, you are witnesses. You tell your children about it. I don't know why. You're weird. Yes, yes I am. All right, guys. Well, this was fun talking about this movie. Probably, I'd probably, probably talk more about this movie than I thought we even could. Um, or maybe even should. I can't wait for the next one. Oh, sweet. Phil can't wait. <laughs> he can't wait, guys. In the meantime, Phil, do you have any final words for the folks? Please uh, be safe. Enjoy yourselves. Have a nice weekend or weekday whenever you're listening to this. Uh, don't forget to uh, watch some movies if that's your thing. Uh, and uh, have a good time. Well said. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was all right. Uh, so, all right. Yeah. So, yeah. On behalf of Phil and myself, thank you for listening. And we hope to have you back next time. And until next time, this has been And Fake Action, the movie podcast with Phil and Dustin. If you'd like to learn more about our podcast or this episode's movie, consider following us on social media for links, pics, and other fun stuff. All of our ads are in the description for this episode. And as always, thanks for listening. Now go watch some movies.